I wanted to hear that passage this morning because one of Mark's big themes is the authority of Jesus Christ, and Paul says it so eloquently. I thought we would hear that this morning. Let's begin by praying together. Father, we, uh, <clears throat> we do come with uh, just a lot of, a lot of hearts, heavy hearts this morning in uh, a world in turmoil, and we do pray for the peace of Israel. And we do pray there for the peace in Gaza and as well as Ukraine and, and others that are just that um, it seems like people can't get enough power and uh, they resort to violence for it. Father, we ask this morning that you visit us in our souls, uh, that you inspire our thoughts and correct them and, and guide them and that you fire up with your Holy Spirit our imaginations of who you are and, and uh, how you work and what you're doing. Father, we ask that you guide us in decisions that we make as a church and as individuals. And we ask that you to be with us in silence when we don't have words to speak and we don't have words to pray or to say and we just don't know what to say. And so, Father, we're asking for your grace and peace to enable us, to enable us to be um, at home with each other, but also at the same time strangers in a world that um, may not accept what you have to offer. And so, Father, we're asking for courage this morning. We're asking for perseverance. And we're asking for that our hearts be altars and your spirit be the fire. And uh, we give ourselves to you this morning and give our church to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before we get started, I do want to mention that I really appreciate the prayers that many of you were praying for us last Monday when the elders met. It was a good time. It was a long day. Um, good food, good fellowship. Uh, and I think we, we come out of there uh, united and with some um, decisions, the Big key now is implementing them, and uh, so I just thank you to, for your prayers for last Monday, and ask you to keep doing that, please, as uh, we we seek to guide uh, this section of God's people uh, into the future. So thank you again for praying. Uh, in 1986, <clears throat> there was an album release that I think that mo many people think is, it could be one of the greatest albums of all time, and I believe it was one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, it became one of the greatest albums in my, our family. Uh, that is the, let's see, I've got to turn this on here. That is uh, Paul Simon's album, Graceland. And uh, I, I, still love that, I still love that album. Uh, it, was, it came out the same year our daughter was born, 1986. And by the time she was four, she could sing with Paul Simon, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. I don't know if you know that song or not. It's a great song. Uh, the whole album is great. And it just dawned on me this morning thinking about that, thinking of her love, and that, love for that song and thinking that explains her obsession with shoes, I think. <laughs> Not only does she buy a lot of them, but since elementary school, she would buy them and decorate them herself. She's 37 years old, and she still does that. Uh, she decorates shoes herself. Uh, but it's a great album, and, uh, and it's, just, it's just perfect. But the, the, title cut, the, the, the title cut of the album is Graceland. And it's a story about Paul Simon traveling with his son, son of his first marriage, to Memphis, Tennessee to visit Elvis Presley's mansion, his home, called Graceland. 
But as you go through the song, you kind of realize, okay, it's more than just visiting a mansion. It's more than just going to a place. He is searching for Graceland. Uh, he starts off the song uh, like this. He says, the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. And I'm following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we're going to Graceland. My traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first marriage. But I've reason to believe we both will be received in Graceland. And then he goes on to talk about different encounters with he's had with other people, and he closes with the chorus with a little bit of a shift, a little bit of a change, and he says, but I've reason to believe we all will be received in Graceland, in Graceland, in Graceland. I'm going to Graceland. And I just love that song, and I think it's so meaningful, and I think everybody on the planet longs for a place where they will be received, where they will be received in Graceland. And and I think it's, it's just part of, of who we are. It's part of our longing. And we get carried into that place where we'll be received only, only by grace. We cross over only by grace. And the thing is that this Graceland is not a place. It's certainly not Elvis Presley's mansion. It is a person. And that's where we find Graceland. And we are all carried that way by grace, whether it's a pope or a president or a princess or a pauper or peasant doesn't there's no exceptions it's all there and the only way to receive it is to have the desire to receive it it's already there uh, we're going to look at a famous story this morning that illustrates that and it also tells us gives us a contrast of what it's like not to visit graceland what it's like not to live in graceland and it's one of the the most famous stories of the, of the gospels it's in all three of the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke and it's the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And Mark kind of adds a little bit of color that Matthew doesn't add. And it's, a, it's just one of those wonderful, wonderful stories. And all through Mark, Mark is kind of an abbreviated book, if you haven't discovered that already. It's kind of really short and to the point. And that makes every word he writes important. And he, if he includes something, it means it's important. And we have this, this string of words that kind of ties all these things together. Last week, we looked at the healing of the leper, and the question was, was the uncleanliness. Who is unclean? It's the purity code that we were looking at last week. Well, this week, the idea is a debt code. Who, is, who owes the debt? Who has sinned? And these things are connected by several words. Both He uses kind of phrases like, like uh, you know, it, it's too crowded. It's, it's so crowded that you can't get into the door. It's so crowded that you can't get to Jesus. He uses that to kind of connect things. He talks about houses, homes. He talks about looking and seeing and knowing. And all these words kind of connect all these stories together. And we're going to look at, at through verse 15 because I think, I think it really is uh, connected to kind of drive home the point. And I've divided it up into four sections. We got the sick, the suspicious, and then the surprise, and then the sinners. See what I did there? All those? <laughs> it's, I don't know why preachers love alliteration, but we do. Uh, but it, maybe it helps us memorize it in our own mind. But we deal with the sick person, and then there's, there's these suspicious people, and then the surprise event, and then finally we, we close with the sinners. So we're going to look at the sick first. Who is this sick guy? Uh, it's... It's a really this, this wonderful, the wonderful picture of this man with some very, very dear friends. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 5. A few days later, 
when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, and no room was left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. And some men carrying came, bringing with him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get into the sea, Jesus through the door because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and began digging through. And it lowered the mat and paralyzed the man. Then the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus seems to like to, to alternate between city and wilderness. And through this whole section, this first section of Mark, he's going back and forth, back and forth. And now he's been in the, he's been in the country, he's been in the wilderness, and they ran into the leper, they healed the leper, and the crowd started gathering. So he comes back to a house. And we don't really know whose house it is. Some people think it might have been Jesus' home himself. I'm kind of inclined to believe that it's back to the house of Peter and Andrew, where he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. Regardless, he's in a home. And uh, the crowd is gathered around the house, so much so it blocks the house. They can't, nobody can get to him, and he's preaching the word. And these four men are bringing this paralytic in a pallet to see Jesus. For some reason, they believe Jesus has the authority to heal him. And they are caring for him. And this is incredible. This man, this paralytic, is literally carried to Jesus on the faith of his friends. We don't know anything about the, the man himself. But he is carried to Jesus on the faith of his friends. And they get there, and, and they don't know how to, they can't get to them. They can't get him in there. And so they're thinking, how do we get to him? How do we get to, the, how do we get to Jesus this way? And so if it's a typical house of the first century, there are ladders or stairs on the outside. And what they did was probably took up the ladder and took them up on the roof as a flat roof, an earthen flat roof, and they begin to dig. Mark literally says they unroofed the roof, and they begin to excavate the roof. And they dug a hole, and they were able to lower the man in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, and with this surprise statement, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we just read the story of the leper, right? So if you're reading this for the first time, you're expecting him to say, get up and walk. You're healed. But instead he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And sometimes I like to think that maybe Jesus has a little sarcasm going with him, you know. And I'm thinking he's looking up at the roof, looking at that hole. You just made a hole in my roof. You're forgiven. Get out of here, you know. <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. But I like to think that maybe he was a little sarcastic going, thanks. Thanks a lot, you know. <laughs> what I do think was happening is that Jesus is hitting the, hitting the issue head on. And and this man is paralyzed, and we don't know why. Uh, we don't know if he's fully paralyzed, like a, like a quadriplegic or a paraplegic. We just don't know. But everybody in the room, including the crowd, probably were assuming that his whole life, that he is paralyzed because he has sinned. That God has taken it out on him. This is his punishment. He has a, he has a debt to pay. Or if it was a birth defect, it was his parents who sinned. But for whatever reason, he is, he is excluded from society. He is an outcast. He is not able to get into the temple, the one place where he can get restored, the one place that he can get back into, a, into the status of society. He's not able to do that. And even if he was there, they wouldn't let him in because he was abnormal. And so he's an outcast, exiled from God and from society. And I really believe that when we're looking at these stories, 
and especially these miracles. The, Mark, Mark calls the mighty works, and I mentioned this last week. We can't just assume that these miracles happened to, to prove Jesus was God. And I don't think they happened just because they're magic tricks to try to get more people to follow him or try to impress people. When Mark's recording these things, he's telling us that there's a, there's, he's pointing to something else. He's pointing to something deeper. And I think this paralytic is sort of a stand-in for Israel. That Israel, too, is in exile. That they, too, are frozen. They, too, are cast out. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, I think we need to re-educate ourselves of what that means. Because we tend to think God is saying, is like patting Tommy on the head, and he's going, that's okay. Try harder next time. You're forgiven, you know. But for a Jew, there was something much more significant than that. For a Jew to be forgiven, it means the exile was over, that we are restored back to God. And if you're talking about the nation, whenever they were talking about forgiveness and being exiled, it was all about this promise that the exile would return, that they would return back to the land, that they would return back and that, that, that divorce would be over. Because the word for forgiven here is so rich that it, it's used to, be, to describe being abandoned. It's used to describe of, of leaving something behind, of being, way, of being away, a separation. And now Jesus is saying, you are separated from your sin. And it comes as a sort of a, a surprise to us because we are expecting something else. But I'm certain that Jesus knew what he was doing. And I'm certain he knew what he was going to do. And so what he was doing, he was getting out in front. He was getting out in front of the controversy that was coming. That this paralytic is sort of representing Israel as sort of a stand-in. And he is the opposite of what God wants for us. And Jesus says, you are restored. You are returned to the exile. But <clears throat> there are some suspicious people there. And after he's described this man reclining on the pallet, he then introduces us to a group of men in the room who are sitting, insulated from the crowd. They are separate somehow. Somehow they got ringside seats. And they are separate, and they are seated in contrast to the paralytic who is reclining. And these are the scribes. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And so he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mallet and walk? Take your mat and walk. Which is easier? So these scribes are sitting insulated. While he's lying, they're sitting, insulated from the people, and they start grumbling. And it's really important that we see here that Jesus sees the faith in the four friends, and he sees the heart of the scribes. And this word see is also real important that goes through the stories. And literally, it does, Mark describes the scribes as dialoguing in their hearts. 
And somehow Jesus knows what they're thinking. Now, whether God showed them, the Holy Spirit showed them what they were thinking, or maybe Jesus was just an astute observer of humankind, which he is, he probably realized what was going on. And Mark says they were dialoguing in their hearts, and then they were dialoguing with each other. And he says, why are you saying this? And this is really how it starts, isn't it? With this small group of opposition. And Jesus sees the faith of his friends, and he sees the paralytic, but the scribes see nothing. The only thing they see is their illusion of God, of what God is supposed to be like, their version of the truth. They are fixated. They don't see the paralytic. They don't see this injured man. They are fixated on their doctrine. They are fixated on this dogma that they believe about God. And they don't even see the man. And they're fixated on that because it is a threat to their authority. And so they sit there, and that's all that's, that's all that's important to them. And so what do they do? They use inflammatory language. And this is so relevant today. That instead of seeing the problem, instead of seeing the injured person, they're only seeing inflammatory rhetoric. And they say, this man blasphemes. Actually, literally, it's just one word. He blasphemes. And blaspheming is a capital offense. If you are convicted of blaspheming God, you are taken out and stoned to death. And ultimately, that's what gets Jesus killed. He is accused of blasphemy. So this is a inflammatory language. He's saying, you are blaspheming. He deserves to die. And they said, what, you can't, only God can do that. And you obviously are not God. You obviously can't do that because he's still paralyzed. If he wasn't para, if he was forgiven, he would be reinstated. He would be be restored to the, the community, he's still a sinner. So obviously, you're wrong. And the question for us is, who really is the paralytic? Which one of these people are really the frozen people? And it's the scribes who are frozen. It's the scribes who are unclean. Because these are the people, and I, and I, I have a little sympathy for the scribes, to tell you the truth. Because it's very easy for me to fall into that trap of being a scribe. These are the people who say, I take the Bible seriously. And I do take the Bible seriously. And coming out, and I don't blame seminary for this. I don't at all. It's not the, it's not the teacher's fault. These were wonderful people that I sat under. But just the, it's just the nature of the beast that you come out of there a scribe, more of a scribe than you do a follower of Jesus because you're all about study. You're all about learning. I mean, I went to Dallas Seminary because of their emphasis on the languages. I love the languages. And it's so easy to fall into that trap to be more concerned about the rules than it is the person. It's so easy to fall in that trap where I start straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. And the person doesn't matter. It's the rules that we follow that matter. And it's so easy for me to do that because I take the Bible seriously. And so I will look at details and I'll look at things and say, oh, you're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. You're saying that wrong. You're not saying it the right way. And it's so, so easy. So my sympathy does go for them a little bit that they're sitting there just looking up at the rules 
because we take the Bible seriously. I don't know how familiar you are with the, um, the Plymouth Brethren movement. Uh, we worked well, quite a bit with the Plymouth Brethren in Mexico. And uh, they have a long history that goes back to England. But their, their motivation when they started was really great. They, they were pulling in Anglicans, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, everybody. And they said, let's just get together and study the Bible together. And so they did. And they started forming groups. And they started forming a church on themselves. And they had this doctor because they, were just, they studied the Bible. They didn't study Methodism or, or Anglicanism or Presbyterianism or Calvinism. They studied the Bible, which is great, great. But then this other group said, well, we're more biblical than you. And then another group would say, well, we're more biblical than you. And they started dividing more and more and more and more. I did a wedding in a church at a, at a Plymouth Brethren church in the, in, the, in the mountains in Mexico. And I was working with the couple, talking with the couple. And uh, they said, in our church, uh, we can't exchange rings because rings are not biblical. That's Catholic. Okay? And they couldn't do some other things. You know, the only gift they could exchange was, of course, a Bible. And they said, oh, and we can't Use, we can't kiss at the wedding either. Our elders won't allow that. They can't have that first kiss, but we really want to. And so I said, okay, I'll play the dumb gringo, and we will do it, you know. And if they get upset about it, it's all me. Hey, I'm just this dumb American. I didn't know your customs and stuff. And so we did it. My point is, it, it's people who take the Bible seriously. And I'm wondering, really, do we take it seriously? Do we lose the big picture so that we can keep our rules? Do we lose the needs of people just so we make sure the rules are kept? And we all come to the Bible with biases. We all do. We all come to the Bible with biases. And how we see ourselves. And when we want to put ourselves in the pictures of the Scriptures... You know, it's funny, we're, we're always Israel, we're never Egypt, right? Sometimes I think we need to think, hey, are we being Egypt here, or are we being Israel, you know? And we read stories like this, and we're always the paralytic, or we're always the friends, but we're never the scribes. But maybe are we the scribes sometimes? I know I am. I know I am. And so I have a little bit of sympathy for these guys but it doesn't mean that they're, they're right. And when Jesus confronts them, he doesn't bark back at them. He asks them a question, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, very important passage here, <clears throat> but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's how he answers them. Verse 10 is super important. This is the first time that Mark calls Jesus the Son of Man, or Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. 
After chapter 8, it occurs like 12 times. But in this first section, he never uses that word, maybe two or three times, I can't remember. But just a couple of times in the first, first section of the book, he calls himself the Son of Man. Why? Well, the Son of Man, when they hear the word Son of Man, they think Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's, these, there's this vision of these monsters, four monsters, who come out and they do their worst until somebody, Daniel says, someone like the Son of Man comes and restores it, conquers them and restores it, and, the, and, and the Israel is restored to them. That's what they're thinking. And so what Mark is saying here is that what you're looking at with this paralytic is what Daniel is talking about. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom. This is, this is the new creation breaking in. In other words, this is one of those, what you're seeing here, this is that, what you read in Daniel. This is the beginning of the new kingdom. And God is in the business of restoring people. Be it so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. That's what it's all about. This is what we're looking at. This was the promise of the prophets. Here's Isaiah. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. And we will see that happening too later on in Mark. And the water will flow in the desert and streams in the wilderness. Jeremiah says, I will bring them back from the land of the north and I will gather them from all distant parts of the earth and blind and lame people will come with them and so will the pregnant women and women about to give birth. A vast throng from all people will come back. This is the promise of the prophets and Jesus is saying, this is happening right now. We are being restored. Jesus is the authentic human being he is the embodiment of the new creation he is what human beings are supposed to be he is not only the forerunner of what humans are supposed to be he is the actual source of forgiveness not just the way he is the actual source but the scribes have little need for the gospel they have little need for this because it threatens their authority it's been said that religion is for people who are afraid of hell Spiritual, spirituality is for people who have been through hell. And this is what this paralytic is like. And, and we scribes can be smug and content and pious and, uh, to, and, and devoted to these devotions that really don't ask a whole lot of us as long as we believe it right and we say it right. We only look for people who are, quote-unquote, normal to be in our group. And Jesus is saying, and the prophets are saying, they come from all parts, all vast of life. And we have to get comfortable with this. We forget. We forget how people change. We forget that this highly insulated human condition that the scribes are existing in doesn't work for change. That change happens through living water flowing through us. We forget that there's something more than just keeping the rules. We forget that we fall into this great compassion of Jesus Christ, and that's how we change. And that's how we get other people to change. And, and, and the church, I'm not talking about Shepherd of the Valley, I'm talking about the church in general, it can be a weird place. It can be, we, we say that we, we have the medicine for all of this, all these problems. We say we have the solution for all these things, 
But then it turns out we only want certain people in our club. And Jesus is saying, even the outcasts are welcome in. Even those on the skirts, even those in the exile are being restored. We need to make sure that that is open. That Jesus' disciples is a unique group. It is distinct. But at the same time, you want to talk about open borders? We have open borders. It is a distinct group with an open boundary. And we bring people in. Instead of complaining and clutching pearls and talking about, ah, the world today, we've got the medicine for the world today. We've got the solution for the world today. And it's found in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. And the reaction of the people is just the opposite of what the scribes wanted. They praised God. The illusion that they had of God had collapsed, and they praised God. And Matthew adds a phrase in this that I think is very important. Mark left it out. Matthew included it. And he said they knew that now people, human beings, had the authority to pronounce forgiveness. We have the authority to do that. Based on the work of Jesus Christ and based on who he is, we have the authority to tell people you can be restored. All those stuff you're embarrassed about, all those stuff that has brought you shame, all those things that have been done to you and done by you, we can separate them. And you can find a home in Graceland here in Jesus Christ. And I've added these last three verses in because I think it drives home the point. It's kind of a hinge. It, get, it induces the next story where we, where, we reach, where, we, where we see another group of opposition, the Pharisees, for the first time. So it kind of bridges that, but at the same time, I think it sort of sums up everything here. The man gets up and leaves house, leaves the home, and I, and I forgot to mention this that I think is kind of cool. Jesus said, you know, what, is it, what am I going to say? Get up and walk. But what does he tell the paralytic? He says, get up and go home. Go home. Go home to where you're received. Go home because you are restored. Go home to those people who love you. And be reconciled with them. Your debt is paid for. Go home. Well, now the man leaves home, and he goes home. And Jesus is walking, and he leaves the house. Again, that word, he leaves the house. And he sees, there's that word again, he sees Levi this time. And Levi is this tax collector. He is in a booth collecting customs and collecting taxes. When people travel from the, the region governed by Herod Philip to Herod Antipas, and he's there, he's paid for his booth, you know, and he's there to collect the taxes and whatever else he wants to put. And these tax collectors had a terrible reputation. They were traitors working for an oppressive government. They were dishonest. The tax may have only called for this amount, but they will charge you this amount. And they were economically secure people, but totally, again, total outcasts from the society. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And just like the fishermen, Levi leaves his vocation to follow Jesus. But not only does he follow him, he invites Jesus to dinner, to his house. There's that house again. And they're reclining at the table 
like the paralytic was reclining on the pallet. And now they're reclining at the table with all of his sinner friends, and they're having a good time and eating. It paints a picture of joy. And we call people like scribes killjoys. Why? Because that's what they do. They kill the joy. And the story ends with this, this dinner, with this openness, and this is what disciples of Jesus do. They mix with sinners. This is what we do. So we have a question. Is our God the God of the scribes? Or is our God the God of the companions who brought the paralytic? Which God is ours? The main business of this whole Christianity thing is not learning better how to think about Jesus. It's to have an encounter with Jesus. That's the whole point of this whole Christian thing, is to have an encounter with him, not just think correctly about him. And the scribes come up short here. They, they come up short. I can't remember who said this. It might have been Walter Brueggemann, but he says, if you find yourself having to feel like you have to defend God, then chances are you're worshiping an idol. God doesn't need our defense. He just wants to know us. Are we going to be the scribes or are we going to be the companions? Are we going to be the ones who are insulated ourselves and want to sit sit on the side and just make sure people say things the right way? Or are we going to be like the companions who are bringing people based on our faith to Jesus? And I just think it's wonderful that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the guy in the pallet said nothing. He didn't confess. He didn't ask for repentance. And to me, that tells me that this forgiveness is, yeah, it's there. You've got it. You just got to want it. You just got to acknowledge it is all because it's already there. And I just think that's amazing. That's incredibly fascinating to me that he just said, your sins are forgiven without being asked. And I think what he's doing, he's stretching the mind and trying to open the hearts of the scribes. And that's what he wants to do with us, to stretch our minds and open our hearts. It's so easy to have these illusions about God and we want to hang on to them because we can bring them down and kind of understand them in our terms. But those terms are almost always dualistic, black and white good or bad, physical, spiritual. And I think he wants to raise our, stretch our minds and open our hearts. That forgiveness is granted before we even say a word. All we have to do is get up and go home. That's it. That's all. Just need to come to grips with that and trust him together that nothing separates us from the love of God. That the love of God does not depend on anything. It doesn't depend on anything we do or say. If it does depend on anything, then when, when and if that anything collapses, then God's love collapses. But it never collapses. It is not dependent on anything except his character. And we just accept it. That's it. So the main business about this, the way I get out of this, 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 this story is who is our God? Is it the God of the scribes or is it the God of the paralytic? Is it the God of the four friends? And I just love it that these friends were carrying him on his faith. 
And I think that what he's trying to say is that sometimes people need other people's faith. And we may know other people in our friends and our families who maybe are not physically paralyzed, but they are spiritually paralyzed, and they just say, I don't have enough faith. I can't believe. I'm not sure I believe this. And you say, that's okay, because I have enough faith for the both of us. And I can carry you there if I need to. And I know that's true because I have been there. I have been where I said, I'm not sure I believe anymore. I mean, there are several times in our lives, but there's one time in particular where we're just going, are we, are we even selling the right thing? And we're just not sure we believed anymore. And we needed each other's faith to carry us through. And I can depend on you, I hope, to say, when you get to that point that, Tommy, you don't believe and you have trouble believing this, I've got enough faith for the both of us. And we will go this together. And hopefully I will say that to you. If you say, I'm just not sure I believe anymore, then I can say, that's fine. I will carry you with me. And I've got enough faith for the both of us. And we will do this together. And I think that's really the question. Is our God the God of the scribes? Or is it the God of the four friends? Are we willing to carry the stretcher? Let's pray together. Father, we, we confess that, that uh, we get lost in things that really don't make a hill of beans. And we want to trust you with our lives, and we want to trust you with our families and our friends. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.